Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16. We are continuing in a series going through 1 and 2 Samuel, looking at uh, the events there, really with the theme, thinking about God's presence with his people, the way that God promised to be among his people, ultimately, for us, uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's coming to be among his people until he brings us home, where we will dwell with him forever and ever. And so this passage from 1 Samuel 16, it is the anointing of King David. So we've been here for a number of weeks, and we're finally getting to David, who will be the main character for the rest of our time here in this, in this uh, section of the scripture. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 13, uh, and you can follow along with me. It's on the screen behind me. Uh, it is also printed for you in your worship folder. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well, or you can grab a Bible and read with us however you can. Let's get our eyes on the text together as we read, uh, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to the sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. And was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The theme of this scene is made clear by the repetition of the root ra'ah in the Hebrew, which is translated see. It occurs nine times. Now, it's not as obvious in the English translation because it's translated using different words, which is unfortunate, but, but you would notice it. So the word provided in verse 1 is the same word as the word looked in verse 6 and 7, and the word see there in verse Seven and even the word chosen in nine and ten, and so it occurs over and over again, which is an indicator to the reader of the material what the material is actually about. This is a text about seeing. 
seeing as God sees, which is an important part of the spiritual life. Now, it's almost Christmas time. Can we say that? Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, we're rounding to Christmas. It'll be here before you know it. And you know, uh, in the days leading up to Christmas, you know, don't try to deny the fact that you'll watch Tim Allen play Santa Claus at some point in that time of year. In those movies, the Santa Claus movies, you know what I'm talking about? They are so bad that they are somehow good. And if they're on, you can't not watch. But just in case you've somehow not seen the movies, they are all about a toy maker who frightens Santa Claus into falling off his roof and then is forced to replace him and become Santa Claus himself to impress his son. He rides the sleigh, he delivers the presents, they fly back to the North Pole, and even so, as this all is unfolding, he is just expressing what a hard time he is having believing that it is all true. And there's a scene when he arrives back, he says, I see it, but I don't believe it. To which Judy the Elf, iconic, you know, movie character, says, but Santa, seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. That's pretty profound for a Tim Allen Santa Claus movie. C.S. Lewis famously said something similar. He said, in Christianity, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What did he mean? He meant that we like to think of ourselves as being objective, that what we see, that we see what is in fact really there, and then form our opinions from the data that we objectively are able to collect, but in truth, we all are believing before we begin seeing. And those beliefs, those convictions, those values and morals act like a lens that we see through. Now, we all know this is to be true if you just stop and think about it for one minute. Because two people can look at the same object and see something completely different. We say, are you a glass half empty person or a glass half full person? Two people look at the glass. One sees a glass that's half full and the other sees a glass that's half empty. And a lot that has a lot to do with just the state of their heart and the kind of person they are in the way that they're seeing. A person who believes in God and what he says in his word and the promises that he's made sees the world very differently than a person who does not. Two people can look at the same thing and see something very different. I can, I can illustrate this for you. Go ahead and put some of those things up there. Is it four logs or is it three logs? Okay. That one's tricky. Put the next one up. Okay. Is that a donkey or is it a seal? You see it? Okay? Anybody remember this one? <laughs> yeah, you know, right? Was it blue or white? Is that what we were trying to decide between on this or something like that? Is it blue? Is it white? Who knows? We're gonna, we're, but it was like Facebook argument for like six months over this thing. Right, because again, two people can look at two at the same thing and see something very different. Now, the text is direct. It is very to the point. Look at verse 7. It says, the Lord sees not as man sees. And that is a problem. It can get you into a whole lot of trouble. 
God has a particular way of seeing, and it is not the way that we typically see. And so here's the question I would have you ponder this morning as we engage with this text. Have you ever thought about the lens that you see life through? The beliefs and the beauty, the convictions and the values that cause you to see things the way that you do, the story, the narrative that you believe to be true that causes you to understand your circumstances in a particular way. Because you see, in this text, there is a contrast between how the Lord sees and how man sees. And it sets up the dynamic conflict, not only here in this passage, but also in our own hearts and lives. And so what we need to do is we need to walk through the text paying attention to these things. We want to, we want to see first how we typically see. The text tells us the way that we typically see. Secondly, it also tells us, in contrast, how God sees so that in putting those two things side by side, we might begin to see as God sees by ultimately seeing the unseen son who is in the background of this text. Okay, so let's walk through those three things together. A lot of seeing this morning. So first, if there is a contrast between how God sees and how you see, then the first thing that we really need to try to make sense of is to understand how it is that we typically see. How do you typically see? And it's expressed very to the point there in verse 7 where, where it says, man looks on outward appearance. You see that there in verse 7? Man looks on outward appearance. In many ways, this is a really simple sermon just on those few words. Man looks on outward appearance. Now, in verse 1, the text begins with Samuel's grief over Saul, which implies that he has had great hopes for Saul, largely due to an overestimation of Saul's outward appearance. If you remember weeks ago, when we've been going through some of these early chapters, the material recording the choice of Saul, that's in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Samuel, say nothing about Saul's character or his inner life. All we learn about Saul in the process of Saul being chosen to be king of Israel is that he was handsome and that he was tall. He was outwardly impressive because for the people, that was what they assumed made for a great king. But the lesson was being outwardly impressive, being handsome and being tall has nothing to do with being a good king. And that's the lesson. But Samuel has not yet learned the lesson because he comes into this text and he does the same exact thing. Verse 6, he sees Eliab, who looks a lot like Saul, and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But you, you have to ask, but by what measure? Well, it's the exact same thing. Look what it says. What, are we, what is it about Eliab that grabs Samuel's attention? It's his appearance and his stature. He was outwardly impressive. He was the firstborn, handsome. Tall, strong, just like Saul. Samuel has come to anoint Saul's replacement from among Jesse's sons. And the anointing was symbolic of divine authorization and divine power for a specific task or role. Being king, in this instance. Being king, for example. And the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. It means the Christ. It means God's special instrument. But the word 
anointed. That word anointed has particular parlance in Christian circles even today. You might hear somebody say that, man, that person is anointed. Or, wow, she's, she's got the anointing. And typically, what's fascinating is when you hear somebody talk that way, what they're describing is charisma. They're referring to the gifts to the power of their personality, to the way they hold sway, to what they're like on stage. And this is the lens through which we typically see. We look at the outside, not the inside. We, and this is where we have to make sure we understand this so we can do the proper repentance this morning. We are typically more drawn to charisma than we are to character. That's why nobody marries the right person. That's what Tim Keller says, right? Nobody marries the right person because nobody marries for character. 22-year-olds don't think about character. when they're getting, Are you kidding me? We are drawn to charisma, not to character. We're more attracted to power and spectacle than we are to ordinariness. We assume that big is better than small, fast is better than slow, and strong is better than weak. We are just as obsessed with physical appearance as the people in this text are, and it's a spiritual disadvantage. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, which is really great, by the way, he distinguished between what he called the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. If you've not heard this, it's become rather popularized. And the resume virtues, he said, are the things that you list on a resume. They are the skills that you bring to the job market that contribute to external success. All of the things that you've done that qualify you for the job. The eulogy virtues are the things that will get talked about, hopefully, at your funeral by all the people that loved you, the kind of person you were, things like bravery and kindness and faithfulness. And the argument he makes is that most of us would agree that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues, and yet, in some strange way of doing life, we tend to spend more time and energy thinking about and developing the resume virtues than we do the eulogy virtues. We have clearer strategies for how to achieve career success than we do how to develop profound character. And it's because the moral ecology that we've been nurtured in has changed so dramatically just in the last few generations. Now, the book begins in the very first chapter with uh, a really helpful illustration about a story where David Brooks is driving home from work. He's listening to a radio program that was replaying the radio broadcast from August 15th, 1945, the day after V-Day. And he, he was just reflecting that we had just accomplished one of the most courageous, most important outcomes in the history of the world. And yet the people that were being interviewed in this radio broadcast, they were understated. They were almost shy about it. There was no there was no chest beating. There was no boasting. Bing Crosby was the host of the show, and at one point he comes on the show and he says, today our deep down feeling is one of humility. And then Brooke says, I pulled into my driveway and I was so captivated I finished the, the program, and then I went inside and I turned on a football game on TV, and a quarterback through a small pass, a short pass to a wide receiver for a two-yard gain, and the defensive player whose team was down by 21 points made a stop and immediately jumped up and did a self-puffing victory dance. And he wrote this, he said, it occurred to me that I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I had heard after the U.S. won World War II. Something has profoundly 
shifted. In the moral ecology of our world and our culture, and it's having significant impact. And here's the thing, because, because we tend to look on outward appearance, we assume our outward appearance is what is being looked at by everyone else. And so the result is that everything, everything, everything has become a performance. Politics, media, life, children's birthday parties, everything is now a performance. So here's the way I would ask you to consider applying just this, this little truth here. I would just say, give consideration in light of learning here how profoundly man tends to look on the outward appearance. Give consideration to recognizing how curated your life might have become. You know, a lot's been made about how airbrushed and staged much of social media is. I mean, even be real isn't real, let's be honest. Not if it takes two or three or ten times for you to get the be real. But what has not been talked about is how the curated parts of social media really are just corresponding to the rest of life. Social media is not the problem. Social media is just an expression of the way we live our lives in so many other places. It's not the exception. It is an extension of the rest of life. Everything is curated. Everything is performative. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and all men, are, men and women are merely players. And it's true. And it's the fruit of a lot of things. But it's the fruit of the philosophical schools of existentialism and radical individualism these things that have been shaping us for generations that we're not really even aware of. Trevin Wax calls it performative individualism. I think that's helpful. He says we're all content creators. We're all broadcasters because it is impossible to escape from the sense that you're always on stage or that someone somewhere is judging how you play whatever role you've adopted. And so we live in a stage of perpetual auditioning. And what, what, I mean, oh, there's just so, I mean, we could be here for a long time, but we got to keep moving. But even the institutions, the institutions that we belong to now are no longer molds that we expect to shape character. They are platforms that are there to merely allow people to be themselves and then to display themselves to the watching world. We now belong to things like church and schools and civic institutions and and all of these things, we belong now for public affirmation, not for private growth. We belong for the sake of virtue signaling, not virtue cultivation. And by the way, religion is not exempt from this. You know that, right? Jesus confronted the Pharisees in his own day for their exhibitionism, for fasting and praying and giving alms in the marketplaces all of it so that they could be seen by others. That whole way of life is the fruit of the way that we, <clears throat> we typically see. Man looks on outward appearance, okay? But second, if there is a contrast between how you see and how God sees, then one of the things, one of the other things you have to understand is how God sees. And here is the contrast. Man looks on outward appearance, verse 7. But the Lord looks on the heart, we're told there. So, in other words, God is more interested 
far more interested in the inside than on the outside. God cares more about your motivations and your desires and less about your outcomes. He focuses on the heart, not just behavior. And if that is the way he does things, then it's the way you should do them too. Again, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because he said they were outwardly clean and beautiful, but inwardly full of greed and self-indulgence. They were like whitewashed tombs was the illustration that he used. Outwardly beautiful, but inwardly full of dead people's bones. Jonathan Edwards argue that the fruit of the Spirit and not the gifts of the Spirit are the real evidence of a person that has had a transformative experience of God's grace. Do you know the difference? The fruit of the Spirit, the things the Spirit is doing in our life and making us a certain type of person, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, all of these things, he said that they are much more important in the spiritual life than the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit being things like preaching and teaching and tongues and even miracles or ministration, whatever it might be. And here's the way he put it. He said, he said, the gifts are like a beautiful garment or a precious jewel, something that is worn on the outside of the body that beautifies the body in some way, some outward adornment that doesn't necessarily change the inside or change the body. The fruits, however, are the true beauty because they are the things that actually beautify the person. They're not outward. They are, they are the inward beautification of the, of the mind, body, soul, person, the precious jewel. And that's just what the Apostle Paul said. He said, if you can move mountains with your faith, and if you're an eloquent public speaker, but you don't have love, if you can do all these amazing things that people can see, but you don't have any true beauty on the inside, then you're nothing. It all counts for nothing, he said. He, he went on, he echoed... Paul, he echoed it again in 1 Peter, talking to women in the early churches where he said he encouraged them not just to adorn their external with braided hair and jewelry, but to adorn their insides with true moral beauty. And that word adorn there is interesting is the word cosmos, the word, the word for the creation, the ordering of all things by God and arranging and making them beautiful. So Peter is saying to men and women, don't spend all of your time and energy trying to arrange and order and make up just the outside of your life. Don't order your life around the goal of external beauty because true beauty is inward. So focus on the inside because that's where God looks. Now, I've gotten away from the text. Back to the story for a minute. Saul, Saul got the job done, but he didn't have the kind of heart God wanted. He wasn't motivated on the inside the way he should have been. Saul was anointed too, remember. The Spirit came rushing on him just as it did with David in this text in verse 13. Saul had all kinds of spiritual gifts, but he was selfish. He had charisma and leadership in spades, but he was insecure and hungry for power. And so we're told here that God rejected him and went looking for his replacement. In chapter 13, this man that he's looking for is described as a man after his own heart, a man with the right kind of stuff on the inside, okay? And so let's apply this for a minute too before we move on to the last point. Again, from David Brooks in that book, he, he argued this. He said, life is a moral affair. And he put it really well, I think. He said, the struggle against sin and for virtue is the central drama of life. No external conflict is as consequential or as dramatic as the inner campaign against our own deficiencies. 
This struggle against, say, selfishness or prejudice or insecurity gives meaning and shape to life. It is more important than the external journey up the ladder of success. And rather poignantly, he says this, I thought. He says, it doesn't matter if you work at a hedge fund or at a charity serving the poor. There are heroes and schmucks in both worlds. The most important thing is whether you're willing to engage in the struggle. If you're a teacher or stay-at-home mom, if you're planning a church or running a nonprofit or starting a business, undoubtedly one of the things the text is teaching is that the thing that will make the most difference in the work that you are trying to do is not talent or technique. It's character. It's the kind of person you are that matters most. And that means, just another application, that means going on that journey inward, the true, the true uh, adventure of life means embracing a lifestyle of hiddenness. Because if you prioritize the inner life above outward performance, let me just tell you, you'll be largely unseen. You'll largely be unseen, except by God who tends to be blind to outward appearances, maybe not blind, but definitely unimpressed. The Lord looks on the heart. Okay? So lastly then, there's a contrast obviously between how you typically see and how God sees, and the goal then is that you would begin to see the way that God sees and to choose the way that God does in the story, not like Samuel. And so let's ask the question, well, how? And uh, just to finish this morning, in order to do that, you have to crown the unseen son as the king of your life. Now, let me explain, okay? Look back there again in 1 Samuel 16. The drama of the story is that the seven sons of Jesse's were paraded before Samuel, but none of them were chosen. And so Samuel had to ask, are there any more? Is this, is this everybody? You know, he says, and he learned that the youngest son had not been invited and that word youngest there in those verses is a derogatory term. They are already, they're already ripping David. They're making fun of him. It means something like the runt. Well, there's the runt. You know, the least qualified. He's, he's out with the sheep, I think. It was the job that was given to the family member with the lowest status. A completely forgotten, unseen role in the family. They did not think, think, they did not think enough of David to even invite him to the feast. And yet, he was the one. And when David arrived, at the end of the story, Samuel arose in response to the word of the Lord, took the oil and anointed his, him king, it says, in the presence of his brothers. In other words, it's spectacle. God is teaching this family and he's teaching us a lesson. The David king, when nobody thought he would be, is the lesson, it is the spectacle. The apostle Paul put it this way. He said, Eliab would not be king David would be because, those verses Jonathan read, God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak to shame the strong. God has chosen what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, the nothings, in order to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why? What's the lesson that this family needs to learn, that Israel needs to learn, that we, by extension, need to learn. What's the lesson? Here's the lesson 
What matters is not human skill or human strength, but God's power. Not by might, nor by power, by my spirit, says the Lord. Salvation belongs to God. That was the amen. Okay? Salvation belongs to God. And yet, we are prone to boast and to rely upon ourselves That is what is behind our fascination with outward appearance. Let's dig a little deeper. It's a spiritual problem. Eliab or David? It's a choice between human self-sufficiency and God's grace. Israel wanted a king who would be a warrior to fight their enemies for them. Someone strong and physically imposing with lots of charisma. God wanted a king for his people who would be a shepherd to lead them spiritually. Someone with a tender heart. And this is a dominant theme. In this material, the author has gone to great lengths way back in chapters 8 through 10 to show that God wanted a shepherd for his people and Saul was no shepherd. But remember in the text, where is David? Where is he? He's with the sheep. And when Samuel came to Bethlehem, David was not home. He was not with the sheep because he was the shepherd king that God intended all along for his people to have. See, Saul was a boast. It was a symptom of the disease. The creature trying to be the creator. The clay trying to be the potter. Servants acting like they are actually kings. The weak thinking that they are strong and trusting in their own strength and not relying upon God's grace. This is the essence of sin. Man trying to put himself where only God deserves to be. So the choice is David, the runt, because God is screaming at the top of his lungs, not only for Jesse's family and the nation, but for us, that salvation is by God, God's power, God's grace. Salvation comes only through the Lord, God's power working through human weakness. And so we're we're told in verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward because not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit. It would be God's power. It would be God's salvation coming through David, not David himself doing the saving. See, if the essence of sin is man trying to substitute himself for God, then the essence of salvation is just the opposite, God substituting himself for man. Eliab wasn't the choice. But actually, neither was David. Tim Keller writes this. He says, There was another child in Bethlehem who was not allowed in but kept out with the sheep. There was another who was anointed by the Spirit and then sent out into the wilderness, but not just to be hunted by Saul, but to be assaulted by Satan, who was not just forgotten by his father, but was forsaken by his father, the most brilliant and beautiful and gorgeous person in the universe, Jesus Christ. He lost his attractiveness so that we, though being marred by sin and spiritually unsightly, could become beautiful in the eyes of God. David David was a nobody who became a king. Jesus Christ, David's son, was the king who willingly became nobody, who made himself nothing because that's how grace works. We are small and God is big. We have nothing. God is our everything. And there is only one thing that can make you see the way God sees and make it your goal to become a person of inner moral beauty and to choose the way that Samuel chooses here, that God chooses here. There's only one thing beautiful enough, only one thing powerful enough to transform you from the center of your life and to drain your heart of all of its insecurities and fears. Because, by the way, that's where all of the self-puffing victory dances come from. 
That's where all the posturing arrives from, all of the boasting. We're, we're not secure enough or strong enough to be small. We're not secure enough or strong enough to be quiet. We're not secure enough or strong enough to be unseen or forgotten. And yet, that is exactly the kind of life God points us to. And so the only way to find the courage and the affirmation and the inner fullness is to see that the most beautiful being in the universe became ugly for you. The most powerful being in the universe became puny. He became a runt for you. Jesus Christ made sin for you, dying upon the cross in your place, then giving you his righteousness as a gift. Jesus went through infinite agony to make you his and to become yours so that your glory, excuse me, so that your heart might be full of the glory that only comes from God, that only comes from God. But here's the question. Is he your choice? That's the right answer. You got it, Diane. Is he your king? Have you crowned him the king of your life? Have you given your love and your loyalty exclusively to him above everything else? Are you building your life on his kingliness? Because if you are, here's the great news. If you build your life on his kingliness, then his kingliness will begin to flow into you. So what's the takeaway? Let's finish up. This is a story about who should be king. But it is also a story about how to get kingly character into people so that they don't just live for themselves, but they live to be a blessing and bring change for the good of others. Listen to this song from Revelation where they declare the fruit of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, where they say, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every nation and made them kings and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, what you need to know is that's not just the future. That's not If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not your future. It is a description of your life right now. God has created you in his image to be an image bearer, to subdue the earth and have dominion and be fruitful and multiply. He has redeemed you through Christ and given you his spirit to make it possible for you to actually live that life. But you have to strive for the right kind of greatness, for a different kind of greatness, because you actually see and choose like God does. It, C.S. Lewis illustrates this so well. I'll just finish with this in The Great Divorce, which I can't, man, it is so good. I can't recommend that book. It's one of, I, anyway, uh, it's a book where uh, uh, the, whole, the whole book takes place on the outskirts of heaven, and there's one scene in particular towards the end. Uh, there's a procession, there's a parade coming down. The, the street, and it's all in honor of a woman who is, as it's described there, so blindingly, so unbearably beautiful that everybody there has to kind of shade their eyes. They can't even look upon her beauty and her glory. And the tourists all gather around and they begin to try to guess who it might be <laughs> who's being celebrated. And the tour guide has to stop and he says, it's someone you will never have heard of. Here's what he says. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived at Golders Green. And then one of the tourists speaks up and says, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. I, the tour guide said, she is one of the great ones. But 
of course, fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. See, Sarah Smith from Golders Green was a person who in her earthly life was probably overlooked. She most likely went unseen. She just loved whoever was put in her path. And yet those small acts of love, as C.S. Lewis goes on to describe it there, those small acts of unselfishness and love were like a stone dropped into a water that created a ripple effect in the waves spread out further and further and further, and who knows how far they might go in the end after a billion years. So what's the takeaway for you? What does it mean for you to put your faith in Jesus and trust him and crown him the king of your life and have his kingliness start to flow into you? What's the takeaway? Be a Sarah Smith from Golders Green. Have you, ever, have you ever made the connection in the, in the hymn we sing quite often, Be Thou My Vision? The first verse goes like this, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought by day and by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. Now verse 3, it says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and Thou only first in my heart. See, that's the key to seeing. God can't be your vision. He can't be the lens, his grace can't be the lens through which you look at all of life until he is first, the first in your heart. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Friends, seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. Amen? Pray with me, would you? So Father, come now as we have this chance here at the end of our service to respond. And for some of us, it might be like a first-time response, like to say, oh man, okay, Jesus is worthy of my absolute loyalty and trust. And so I pray that you would move upon some of our hearts and crack them open maybe for the very first time and to sing this song as a confession of our faith and repentance in you, but for the rest of us, the need to believe and to repent. Uh, no matter how far down the road we are, it is, we have a, no less of a need to believe and to repent. And so as we sing with the truth that we're about to sing, come home to our hearts. Because here are the words. It, this song doesn't say, I have Jesus, the song says, all I have is Jesus. All I have, nothing else. And that is the true reality of our life. Lord Jesus, you are all we have, and yet the person who has you has everything. The person who has everything but you has nothing. And so would you, would you cause an eruption in our souls of gratitude and joy that would overcome us and result in this song we now sing so that you might be glorified through us and so that the glory that comes from you might find a home in our hearts. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, all we have is Jesus. I love that we get to end our services with the prompt, with this benediction, with these good words of promise. Uh, we got some news this week that was hard for our family, and really it boils down to we, there's a forced weakness that is in front of us that will not be healed until heaven, and that is really hard. Um, 
but what it, it's, it's a good work God's doing because it just means that I, in my blindness and foolishness, can't pretend that that's not always been the case. Uh, and as hard as it is, I know God is doing a good work because it means that he will have to be our everything, and that is good. And that's what the promise of these words means, is that you can go out and whatever forced weakness he puts you into, it's okay. Because it's not really, you're, you're not all that strong or impressive to begin with, okay? Let's be honest. But his promises are true, and his word will not fail, and his presence will be with you, and that's what these words mean. So don't be afraid of whatever it is that might come your way that might feel overwhelming or daunting, because God is greater than all of those things. So hear these words and receive them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.